I think this principle is really critical in this parable, because even though it's not telling us about the higher and more important things of the kingdom, it's a great lesson, life lesson. And that is simply this, is that contentment brings peace. It not only brings peace to me, right? If I'm not envious of other people, I'm at peace with myself, but I'm also at peace with my fellow man. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith. This journey of faith is something that you are on, whether you like it or not, and you're either growing or shrinking every single day in your faith. But we want to be part of your growth plan. We want you to be thriving in your faith and growing closer to God each and every day. Knowing what you believe and why you believe it is one of the most important things about you, and we want to help you discover that and learn to critically think for yourself. My name is Justin Mayer. I'll be your host, but we cannot do the Salty Pastor podcast without the Salty Pastor himself, the one, the only, Dr. Douglas Peak, coming to us remote from South Dakota. Is that what you had said earlier, Pastor? Well, greetings, everybody. Yes, I am in Rapid City, South Dakota, just outside of Mount Rushmore and Crazy Horse Memorials. Crazy Horse Memorial and Mount Rushmore. I hear uh, mm-hmm. Mount Rushmore is smaller in person than it looks in the movies. Did, is that was that your experience? Uh, not not me personally, because I had kind of thought, well, maybe it is a little smaller, maybe not, but it's massive. It's and, massive. Yeah, and but you know, the oddest thing for me is, for some reason, I always thought that the faces were looking west, but the faces are looking east. So that was the biggest, you know, shock to me. The other big shock here is the Black Hills. Uh, I think are underrated. They're not hills. They're pretty much mountains. And <laughs> it's massive. It's really beautiful. Uh, guy I'm traveling with, he was saying the same thing. He goes, wow. I I mean, I just can't remember how, because he'd been here about 20 or 30 years ago, about how neat this place is. It, the area is very nice. It, it is still kind of out in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's in western South Dakota called the Black Hills. Um, that's as far you know, east of, of Wyoming, you know, you just cross the Wyoming border to the east side and then you're right in the Black Hills. But it's really beautiful country. It's gorgeous country. And what it's known for is not just the hills and the timber, but it's known because of the massive deposits of natural granite. There's just these massive granite formations everywhere you look. And so it's been kind of fun and I'm glad I came, but here I am bringing you the salty pastor from across the fruited plain. Love it. Well, we will expect a full rundown of whether it's a must see when you get back, but let's get back to talking about some parables. We are in our series titled the moral of the story, and it's all about the parables of Jesus. And I personally have really been loving it because we've had an opportunity to really dive into some parables that at first glance can, as their name suggests, be riddles, but Jesus does explain some of them and with, you know, people who have spent their life studying the gospel like yourself and, and Harv and other people like Steve, uh, we're really getting a lot of depth out of these that, um, I think just in passively reading on our own would be a little harder to do. We'd have to spend a lot more time doing it, but now I'm starting to look at other stories and starting to kind of deconstruct them and use the same filter used on parables to try to understand the deeper meanings that Jesus was talking about all along. So I've really loved that. So thank you, Pastor, for guiding us on this. Um, Zach did a great job on Sunday 
But this week we're moving on to a new parable. New week, new parable. It's like the uh, there's a trope yeah. in TV called the monster of the week where it's a new thing each week. This is our new parable of the week, right? New parable of the week. So we are yeah, in the I... parable of the vineyard workers, right? Is that what you yes. wanted to talk about? Perfect. Yeah, it's in Matthew chapter 20. And, you know, going back to your point is that one of the things I like about the parables is their stories. And anybody can read them and they can impact anybody regardless of where you are in your faith. Mm. And one of the great things about it is just keep reading them over and over again, because first and foremost, they're engaging. They're simple stories. But the more you think about them, the more you engage with them, the more they speak to you. And so regardless of where you're at in your faith, I think studying the parables or knowing the parables, reading the parables is a tremendous endeavor. It helps you know why you what you believe and why you believe it it also helps you ground yourself in the foundational understanding of the kingdom of god which you have been invited to be a part of by jesus christ himself and so this parable in particular gives us an idea about how god christ views his invitation to people to come into the kingdom so let me uh just read it for you and then we'll talk about it okay love it let's do it All right, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius, now a denarius is a standard day's wage. I was going to say, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, and that's exactly how they translated it. He said he agreed to pay the normal day wage. Yeah. So like in today, you know, uh, if you wanted to hire a day laborer, you know, you can call workforce, these different places and say, I need someone to come out and work and they'll go, okay, that's 250 bucks, right? Something along that lines. And you get someone out, they come out and they do work for you. He, so this is what it goes on to say. He sent them to his vineyard and he went about on the third hour. So he goes early in the morning. So this is like the crack of dawn and he hires a bunch of laborers to go work in his vineyard right? So there they are working in the vineyard. Then about the third hour, so it's about 9 a.m. in the morning, Mm -hmm. he sees others standing idle in the marketplace. And he goes to them and says, you go into the vineyard also, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, which you know, you're talking about approximately 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Quitting time. The 11th hour. Yeah. So he goes out and he finds others standing around. He says to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, will you go into the vineyard too? So the first thing I want to point out is that he goes down to the place where everybody hires seasonal workers and he hires a bunch. And he probably didn't hire everybody because all of his contemporaries and other businesses and other landowners come through and hire temporary workers, right? So it says basically that he goes throughout the day at about every three-hour increments. And what happens is he sees people still there to the point where at the end of the day, there's a few that haven't been hired, and so he hires them as well, even though they're not really going to perform any work. They're going to get there. They're going to work for 45 minutes, maybe an hour tops. And then everybody comes to the table for payday. 
And this is what happens in verse 8. Watch. Now, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, starting with the last group to the first. So when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one receives a denarius. And so when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. So you, you see what happens. He says, start with the people who started last and pay them first. So the people that only worked an hour, he paid a full day's wage, 250 bucks. And when those hired at the 11th hour came, they received a full day's wage. And so when those hired who came early in the morning, they thought, oh, well, we're going to get an extra bonus. This, yeah, this guy's when paying they, out extra the, today, so we're going to get some more. Yeah. So then when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner because all they received was the day's wage. And this is what they said, verse 12. Those who were hired last worked only an hour, yet you made them equal to us who have been who have borne the burden of the day's work in the scorching heat. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? What he's saying is that this is how most people emotionally react to any situation, right? When they compare themselves to somebody else, they always say, well, I've done more, so I deserve what? More. Yeah. Which is really interesting. He says this. He answers and says to them, Fred, I'm doing you no wrong. In other words, I have done nothing wrong. Okay. You did not, did you not agree with me for a full day's wage? So what you're making is fair and honest and above board. Take what is yours and go. But I want to give, if I want to give this last person the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I want with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. I really like the the NLT, um, I think, translates it in a way that might be uh, another good perspective, which he basically answers them in verse 13 after they've complained. You know, we worked all day in the scorching heat. He says, uh, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous just because I am kind to others? And continues with this. So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. So I think that, um, it. I mean, that's why I like the NLT is sometimes it just, it sounds a little bit more like today's uh, verbiage. I know it's mm -hmm. not necessarily as biblically accurate as probably NASB or one of those others. But I think sometimes just breaking it down into, okay, what is what does this conversation actually sound like if we were having it today? And it's basically a guy going, hey, I worked all day. Shouldn't I get extra? And he's like, no, you got a day's worth of labor. And just because I'm nice and decided to help this guy out at the end, you're going to be mad about that? Why, why would you be yeah. mad that I'm kind to somebody else who needs it? Well, and I think that there's all kinds of implications in this story. You know, the first implications of this story is that it speaks to human nature right mm. it's it's our human nature to always want more than what we deserve or what we've earned it, it's just universal that way and this of course is very destructive to any type of situation if you've got you know fa your family is like this your kids always think they deserve more you know it's like 
well, I deserve a trip to Disneyland because I made my bed. You know, <laughs> I deserve this because, well, that's just human nature. And what what you want to do, I think, which is critically important in raising children, is you want to show them that effort is linked to outcome and you shouldn't always want more. Uh, my wife used to have a saying with our kids when they were real little. She used to say, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Hmm. And that was her way of saying, you must be content with what you have. There's nothing unfair happening to you. And so what that does is, th I think this principle is really critical in this parable. Because even though it's not telling us about the higher and more important things of the kingdom, it's a great lesson, life lesson. And that is simply this, is that contentment, brings peace. It not only brings peace to me, right? If I'm not envious of other people, I'm at peace with myself, but I'm also at peace with my fellow man. Notice that their appeal was, this is unfair. Mm. We worked all day in the scorching sun. So this is unfair. We worked more than them. And now, in a general sense, is it wrong, I think, for a boss to go in and make people uh, work different levels, you know, like maybe his son is there and he doesn't make his son do anything, right? Or his friend's sons, they don't do anything and he pays them the same and and so it, it looks unfair. Yeah, there, I, I think that there's a reasonable justification for saying that. But in this case, the terms were set at a time and they got exactly what they were promised. Right, And so I think contentment uh, is really important. And I, we'll talk more about this on the Thursday podcast. That This is one of the reasons why America is so polarized and is being pulled apart is because the political and philosophical bent in America today is one of envy. And envy sees unfairness everywhere. Well, it's not fair that this person has something I don't have. And so... That that's a problem. We'll talk more about that later. So yeah, I think anyway, but do you see how it grabs that kind of sense? Yeah, and I think I think what you're saying about contentment is really important because ultimately the terms were set. You're gonna come and work a full day and I'll pay you for a full day. And that's what happened. And our natural intuition is well, if I'm working or if I'm perceiving that I'm working harder than someone, I should get more, right? But mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things in life that aren't fair for one, which I think that's part of this story is you need to be content because there are going to be injustices and unfairness in the world. And there's things you can't control. And if all you ever see is those things, you're just going to live a very unhappy life. Right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But on top of that, it's this idea of, well, I, quote unquote, earned it. And there's a lot of things in life that we get that we didn't earn. And so sometimes there's going to be times where you work a little harder and someone else needs a leg up and they didn't earn it, but kindness is okay as well, right? There's mm -hmm. this idea of um, someone who's down on their luck didn't necessarily quote unquote earn a gift from you, but you can choose to have kindness and give them a gift even though they didn't work for it. So yeah, there's, there's definitely, yeah, an essence of charity there. And that's this, that is the human principle, just the, the, the daily principle, it doesn't really speak to a deeper spiritual principle. And I think that's the second thing that this parable really addresses is it addresses uh, the notion of God's invitation to enter into his kingdom. 
Mm. Okay. And that is we are invited through an act of grace on God's part, an act of grace through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was an act of grace on his part extended to us to become a part of his kingdom. Right. And so what happens is there are some who come into the kingdom very early on in their lives. Right. And then there are some people who wait until the very, very end of their lives uh, before they finally make this decision to give themselves to Christ. And what I think is really important is that God's perspective as a landowner is that I am being gracious. My invitation for people to enter my kingdom expands throughout their entire life. It's never too late, regardless of how old you are, to accept this invitation to enter in the kingdom of heaven. And we as followers of Christ, who follow Christ for a long time, cannot have a sense of resentment or rejection or a feeling of unfairness about this invitation. But we should carry this invitation uh, as long as we possibly can with our dying breath to anybody who will listen, uh, because we are acting under the wonderful, loving graciousness of God himself. This is his heart. And so I think that's a really important principle, is that our goal isn't to try to keep people out of the kingdom of God. Our goal is to try to help people get into the kingdom of God by accepting the invitation of the king. Well, and I'll say, I mean, personally, in my growth, I I, I was born and raised kind of in church. And while I haven't always been as faithful as I should have been, and I've fallen away, I've never had kind of that like big Jesus steps into your life and like saves you moment kind of thing. Like you hear mm-hmm. some stories of people that have gone through some really bad trauma or were, you know, uh, uncontrollably addicted to something and, and Jesus sets them free. And you're like, man, I just kind of wish God would step in in my life and do something that awesome because then I could just really have this profound testimony. And I've had to, over the years go, you know, it's okay that I don't have that. He set me up for something different and I'm working in other people's lives in a way that maybe that person can't. And just because I didn't have this like, Mm -hmm. you know, moment in a hotel room in Ecuador, you know, surrounded by (laughs) drugs or something that some other people have had. That doesn't make my testimony less than their testimony, and it doesn't make what I'm receiving from him on a daily basis different from what that other person's receiving. And I think making sure we have that clarity is really important because ultimately we're all striving towards one greater goal, which is we all want everybody we can in the kingdom, and God wants that as well, and we should be pushing towards that, and we're just going about it different ways. And some of us enter later than others. Well, and I think that is, you know, your experience is reflective. C.S. Lewis tells the story of his conversion, and it's really quite fascinating. He says basically that, you know, I was an atheist. I didn't believe in God. And he goes, on one Sunday afternoon, I got on a motorcycle and went through a two-hour ride through the English countryside. He said, when I got on that motorcycle, I was an atheist. He said, two hours later, when I got off that motorcycle, I believed in God. He said, I don't know exactly when that happened over the course of that time. He goes, all I know is that before I got on, I was convinced there's no God. And when I got off, I knew there was. So, 
you, you know, I think that so many people come to faith in a quiet and simple way. Mm. Part of the American experience, a lot of people are not aware of this, is we've kind of uh, woven into our cultural DNA this thing that's called the camp meeting. And the camp meeting, when you look back at the great revivals in America, there were three, they called them great awakenings, massive, massive spiritual revivals in America. And then within a generation of that massive spiritual revival, there were massive societal changes. Like, for instance, the first great awakening happened in about 1730 to 1750, right? So during that period of time, there was a massive great awakening. Well, guess what happened right after that? The American Revolution. (laughs) Uh, We look at in the 1800s, there was a massive spiritual awakening called the second great awakening that started in about 1820 mm. and it went to about 1850 18 late 40s and guess what happened right after that the emancipation proclamation and the civil war to end slavery so you see these massive uh spiritual awakenings there was another one the third great awakening happened after the civil war yeah. and so what happened during that period the greatest economic expansion and then the move for women's suffrage uh, in America. So those were two things that coincided together. So there were these massive great awakenings that had huge impact on American culturally, socially, politically, economically across the board, right? Well, where did these great awakenings happen? Well, they mostly happened in these massive camp meetings, tent meetings, revivals where itinerant preachers would go from village to village to village, town to town to town, and they would preach, you know, these fiery messages, and they'd have music and these massive tents. And as a matter of fact, Vaudeville and then uh, P.T. Barnum Mm -hmm. and the circus, they took their idea of entertainment from these great awakenings in the camp meetings and the revivals that they held, right? Right. Uh, There's one early on in the Second Great Awakening called the Cane Ridge Revival, and they estimated over 50,000 people were at this. Just think about that. I mean, there's no modern-day transportation. These people came in wagons, they packed their own food, and they traveled 50,000 people at one revival in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Isn't that amazing? That's so, phenomenal. So uh, th- those are wonderful things in our history, but guess what? That also, you know, could you imagine for a second just talking about, well, I came to know God at the Cane Ridge Revival, and there was, it was the most intense and incredible experience of my life. There was a mountain to see tens of thousands of people singing to God, you know. Just think of the emotional impact that they would have on you 150 years ago. Right. I mean, that would have been absolutely amazing. I know people go to concerts, you know. And it's filled with the state. I know there's this one guy who talks about going to a U2 concert, you know, and he said, I was there with 250,000 people and it was the most incredible experience of my life, you know? So you can tell these things have incredible emotional impact on people. Well, what has happened is then that starts to weave its way into our spiritual uh, history so that now we start to believe that faith is only this, incredibly emotional response. Now, because of what I believe and because of my convictions, that always instills an emotional response 
But that emotional response is not the catalyst or impetus for my faith. We have to remember, at its core, Christianity is a truth claim. And it begins with belief, not feeling or emotion, but belief. It's a conviction in your mind and your heart that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and that he did what he said he did and that he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. And I think what's so interesting is in your own experience and C.S. Lewis's experience is we see this reflection, right? And so we don't look for an emotional response because what happens is we tend to carry that over into our everyday faith. And what we do is we go, God, emotionally, I'm so drained. Emotionally, I'm struggling. Emotionally, I'm doing all this. I deserve more than those people over there who aren't struggling. Do you see how that works? Yeah. And so, but what that does is it's like, God says, well, wait a second. Why did you come to faith? Why did you come to faith? Don't feel envious. Don't feel jealous or shorted when you are receiving the beautiful promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so it goes to a whole nother level when we look at this historical context of American faith and how it's kind of woven into us, you know, a little bit, is that we want to feel, we want to have these experiences. And I'm not saying those are bad. What I am saying, though, is that they cannot be the foundation or the catalyst for our faith. They must be a symptom or an outflow or the fruit of our faith, which is built on a foundational, propositional claim that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, and he did what he said he did. And when we understand that, our goal is to help people come into the kingdom of God regardless, because that is God's heart for the lost. Well, and I think it's it's important. Um, you brought up a couple different things. One, it sounds to me like you're saying we need to start a motor, motorcycle ministry in order to get people to experience <laughs> God. So I'll, I'll be talking to you about that when you get back. Um, the second part of that I think that's really important is the way you come to faith, I think probably influences how you maintain your faith long term and what you will yes. struggle with as far as growth and that. If you come in a very emotional way to meet the Lord, you might, your temptation and probably your natural instinct to fall away will also probably align in that similar way, right? You know, we see yes. these, we we see this um, kind of play out in a way where it's like, if you um, accept something very rapidly, it's also probably a tendency of yours to stop accepting things very rapidly. You know, it's not always mm -hmm. true one for one, but you will have to, at, the way you came to faith is also going to influence how you potentially, how the devil tries to pull on you to draw you away. And so I think mm -hmm. being aware of the, your testimony and how you came to faith will also influence you in how you should be maintaining your faith and what is going to influence you strongly and how the devil is going to be tempting you. So I think making sure you're aware of that, that those people like, you know, the, the ones in this story where he's like, you know, I've been out here scorching the day all day long, that, that long suffering of, I believe from the beginning. And I'm sure there's disciples when they were with Jesus probably saw these Samaritans and, and these people, the Gentiles he was going to, and they're like, we've been with you this whole time and you're not doing these yeah. kind of things for us. 
You're going up right. to these people that don't haven't followed Judaism ever, and you're talking to them. Like, I'm sure there was some resentment in that as well. And Jesus is constantly, I think, um, I, 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 w- I feel like was probably telling them, no, like, I want everyone here. I want mm-hmm. everyone to come into the kingdom. And yes, you guys have been faithful. Yes, you were the chosen people through whom I came through to save you all. But that doesn't mean it's, it's exclusive. Yeah, it's and it's this is not a, a boy a, a, a secret club that I just want certain people in that have been working since the beginning. That's not what I'm calling for. I'm calling for all of us to be in the kingdom. Yeah, two things that you said I think is really important is that you have to be aware of how you came. And then you have to deepen your faith. And that was the parable of the soils last week. And that is, don't be rocky soil. You have to develop a deep root, you know, Mm. and that's why discipleship is so critical. And then the second thing that I think you pointed out that I I like to say leads to the third and most critical principle of all, and that is some people come to faith and they look at it like, oh, I have to labor in a field under the scorching sun my entire life so that I can get into heaven. And God is saying is that, look, you know, coming to faith is not laboring in a field under the scorching sun. You know, we come to faith because of the blessing and the freedom and the healing that is found in salvation, Mm. being born again and new, the blessing of God working in our lives. And this is really interesting is that these people that were jealous saw work as a burden. Right. But, but what happened is, God saw work, the landowner saw work as a blessing, and that these people were cheated out of the blessing of seeing their day bring value to themselves. I mean, right? he says that, right? In the in the verse, he's like, why are you not working? Like, don't you want to be, basically, he's like, why have you not been out in the field working today? Like, don't you want to be seeing that value grow? And he invites them in to say, hey, come join my guys. Let's go work together. See, and see, that's a great statement about value. And the first people actually cheated themselves out of the blessing and the joy that the landowner gave. Because the issue to the landowner wasn't money. The issue to the landowner was what? Value. value. Yeah, that sense of you go away, you say, I worked a hard day and I accomplished something. That's worth more than money. But, you know, the money then feeds you, clothes you, and takes care of your family. And that's awesome. And so the deeper levels of this parable show us that the reason why we come to faith is not because we want fire insurance from the lake of, you know, hell. What we want is we want to walk in the blessing and the fullness of value, the value of our lives, the seeing that everything we do produces, right, a harvest. It produces something better. And these poor people, even though they came in at the last minute, they don't get the blessing of dedicating their life to building the kingdom of God that I had, right? Because I was blessed. I got to do the, I got, I worked a full day. I worked a full life. Mm. And that is going to be a tremendous blessing. Those people were robbed of that because no one would hire them. Mm. And so that, that tells me this is that God is a gracious God who wants to give everybody the blessing and he wants to invite them in the kingdom. Now, what's really interesting is this, is there's some people who are what is commonly known as universalists. And these are people who say, well, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. It doesn't matter what you feel or think, or if you accept Christ or even have faith in him, and he's going to save you anyway, right? 
Right. So your your role is totally irrelevant. And notice this parable completely debunks that idea because the parable says to these men in the square, go work in my field. And what did they do? They went, they worked, not knowing what they would get. And they only worked what? An hour. Mm. But they worked and they received the full day's wage. See, so even if they were unable to put in a full day, it didn't matter to the landowner. At least they came and they showed up, right? It kind of, this is a a sad story, but I went through a period of time about uh, two decades ago where when people would stand on the side of the street with a sign that says, you know, we'll work for food, is I would offer them a job. And I would say, hey, come over here uh, to the church building and mow the lawn, you know, for one hour and I'll give you food or I'll give you 20 bucks. 95% of the time, people said no, Mm. even when you'd offered a job to them. And the other 5% would say yes, and then they wouldn't show up. And so I I think that from that's an illustration of there are a lot of people in today's world with cardboard signs saying, I want to heal, I want to go to heaven, I want to be concluded in God's grace and stuff, but they won't even show up to the vineyard at the end of the day in order to say, I just want to be a part. I just want to be a part. Even if I can only pick one grape, it doesn't matter. I just want to try. Yeah. And so that that's see, that's the act of faith. And because of the society that we live in today, we've lost that. And what I think this parable says without a shadow of a doubt is that ends up cheating us of the blessing and the glory of being productive and a sense of value here on earth as well as in eternity. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Pastor, so much for joining us, even on your trip um, to share with us about the parables. I'm excited to talk with you more on Thursday uh, about how this applies to our modern day when you're back here in Idaho. But I hope you have a safe trip. And for those of you who are listening or watching, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you on Thursday here on the Salty Pastor podcast. Blessings.